I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to the FT Startup Podcast, a 10-part guide to creating and growing a business. Part of the thrill of creating a company is in seeing things happen. But what do you do when things go wrong? The feeling of failure is often the least of it. Owners may face the wrath of disappointed customers, unpaid suppliers, employees who lose their livelihoods, and investors whose money is wiped out. But many of the companies that go through torrid times manage to not just survive, but prosper. Alex Cheetle founded lifestyle management business 10 Group 15 years ago in a spare bedroom of a shared London flat. He set out with the ambitious goal of becoming the most trusted internet platform for concierge services in the world. The biggest challenge, he told me, was getting the first customers to sign on the dotted line. We knew that a lifestyle management service would need to have fairly wealthy clients, and I didn't know that many wealthy people. So I had to ask everybody I knew who they knew that was wealthy and busy, and then I had to ask them one big favour, which is, could they get me a 15 or 20 minute meeting with that person? Ideally at their home, but if I needed to, I'd meet them in their office or another workplace. There was a friend of a friend that at the time was running an IT business very successfully, who had absolutely no time, needed lots of help. We went to see him in his flat. He started telling us that he wanted to source some furniture, he wanted to get into a nightclub, he wanted to plan a weekend trip to Paris, and we started doing that for him. Another friend of mine got me and see his boss. He was a stockbroker, and his boss was the head of equities for a London-based investment bank. And he found it quite funny that we were promising to help him with whatever was on his to-do list. So he just gave us 10 things and said, if you can help with any of those, then good luck to you. And we did 10 of them, we did five of them badly, we did five of them well, and he's still a member today. Hopefully we're doing more than 50% of them well these days. For us, it's got much easier to add new customers for three reasons. Firstly, our service is just much better than it ever was. And so our current members are more likely to tell new members about it. And we've got lots more people willing to promote our business. The second reason is that when we first set up, people weren't sure about what we did. And we didn't know how to explain lifestyle management so people would say well it sounds great what is it and then we'd have to start talking whereas today we can make it much more real for people and the final reason why we find it much easier to get clients is that when we're out there talking about our service it's much more likely that people have heard about it already and with new concepts you often hear that people have to have heard about it from three or four positions before and we've certainly found that to be true. An aggressive expansion during the dot-com boom years of the 1990s meant 10 was operating with significant annual losses. 10 was a much smaller operation than it is now, only operating in the UK. The situation might have been fine if a dot-com bubble hadn't burst, hitting many of the people who were 10's early customers. It was a really anxious time. We felt that we'd done well to start to 
define a new service, but effectively, when you're losing a lot more money than you're getting in every month, you know that you've got the clock ticking. When we realized we couldn't raise more money, we decided that we were going to have to put the business into some kind of administration. One method of avoiding collapse is to create another limited liability company that buys the assets of the old business using a process called a creditor's voluntary liquidation. Alex didn't want his investors to lose out, so he offered to give all his old investors shares in the new business. There were losers, however. He had to make 26 employees redundant, one of whom sued for unfair dismissal. That was really galling for us because it meant that we had to make two more people redundant because of the settlement with the unfair, unfair dismissal claim. That was really upsetting. And critically, when we needed to lose our 26 of our staff, we had 33 or 34 remaining in the business. And a year later, almost every single one of those people was still with us. And a major reason they stayed is because of the values in the business and the fact they could see us living those values. There was also a matter of an unpaid bill to the UK tax authorities, HMRC. Actually, that was something I don't feel too bad about because the small amount of money that we had outstanding with them is dwarfed by the more than £30 we've paid to HMRC since in the new company. But on top of that, we always make sure, as part of a company of trust, that we are paying every penny that we ought to be paying. We don't do anything very aggressive in terms of our tax structuring. How does Alex feel now about what he went through? I think at times of crisis in a business, that's when you either really live your values or lose them. And if you lose them, it meant they weren't real in the first place. So we did make sure that we treated our staff as well as we possibly could, our members as well as we possibly could, and you know, all other stakeholders as well, including the cleaning company that cleaned our offices, who in the end came good. There's always... In business, two steps forward and one step back. And how you deal with the one step back is really interesting. Some people fall apart because they can't take the shame of a failure. Some people fall apart because they can't take the pressure of a failure. So if you can deal with both of those things and become focused on solving the problems ahead of you and making the opportunities come alive, then you're halfway there. But I think the other half is to make sure that at those times of crisis, your values remain intact. One reason why we're now so successful as a business is because people know what we stand for, because we've stood for it through thick and through thin. Mark Cooper-Smith is an entrepreneur and lecturer at Berkeley's Haas School of Business in California. He co-wrote a book with his colleague John Danner called The Other F Word, how smart leaders, teams and entrepreneurs put failure to work. I asked him what was the biggest problem, failure or the fear of failure? Well, Jonathan, it's really both of those. If you're an entrepreneur, then failure is something that you should expect to happen to you, really a lot. If you want to disrupt existing business models, or create new products or services, or establish new channels of distribution, then you need to experiment with new approaches and various business models. And whenever you do those things, especially when you strive for major change and to put a lot of distance between you and the status quo, then you take that risk that you will fail. Now, if you're fundamentally afraid to fail, the fear of failure element, or if you work in an organization where failure is just not acceptable, then you won't take those risks. You will more likely take smaller incremental steps at best. 
You won't try to fundamentally disrupt existing businesses and business models. Instead, you may create small innovations or improvements. Instead of taking new markets by storm, you might tiptoe into those markets and potential customers won't even know you exist. That's how the status quo becomes, really for many companies, what I like to call the static quo. Let's look at the classic case of Kodak. They were clearly the dominant film photography company in the world, having essentially created that category in the 1800s. What many people may not know is that Kodak researchers also invented digital photography, and the company held many of the earliest and most important patents around that new technology. But Kodak leadership was so afraid, and correctly in this case, as it turns out, that digital photography would destroy their hugely profitable film business, that they locked those patents in a safe for many years, providing room for others to emerge and own the category. So Kodak actually had the keys to the kingdom. They had the perfect opportunity to reinvent themselves and assume the leadership position in digital photography. But their fear of failure with regard to changing or disrupting their current business and the paralysis that that fear created ensured that the eventual demise of this once great company was really preordained. And then here's what's really the saddest part of this story. George Eastman, who founded Kodak in the 1800s, his mission was to democratize photography for the masses. What could be more democratic than digital photography? How do you deal with failure then? Well, developing this productive relationship with failure, as we like to call it, is essential because failure happens so often. You know, it happens substantially more often than success. It's really surprising to note that less than 1% of patents, at least in the U.S., are successfully commercialized, for example. So the assertion that my co-author John and I make, and it's the core theme of our book, is that leaders, entrepreneurs, and teams that effectively deal with failure create much more resilient company cultures, more engaged employees and teams, more innovation, and faster growth. Not surprisingly, most executives prefer to deny or rationalize or defer failure whenever they can. A key problem with that approach is that when you do this, when you have that type of mindset, then the opportunity to learn from those failures is often lost. Is there a simple way to capture this thinking? Jonathan, we like to think of failure like gravity. It's a pervasive fact of life that you just can't ignore. But if you become more adept at living with it and leveraging it, then you and your team can reach new heights. I have one final thought, and I'll use an education analogy since I do teach at UC Berkeley. Let's say you just had a failure. In many ways, you've just paid the tuition. Why not get the education and the benefit from the insights that come with it? What insights does Alex Cheadle take away from his experience of failure? I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't want to talk about failure because they feel like it might undermine their own personal brand. That if you've had a couple of failures, it's something you might talk about with your very closest friends, but you really don't want to go public on it. I think we're in a different place. I think it's okay to have made mistakes. Everybody knows that you will have made mistakes if you've been in business as long as we have. And so being upfront, out and proud about those is good because it means people can believe what you're saying. And I think other people can learn from it. It also makes sure that you don't forget 
your biggest mistakes. Our biggest mistake back in 2003 was not having a viable plan B at all times. And now we always make sure we've got a viable plan B. If we didn't talk about our failures, we might forget to learn from them. In the next episode, we look at balancing work and your personal life. Don't forget, if you have any questions for me or any of the experts I've spoken to, email me at jonathan.moles at ft.com and we'll attempt to answer some of these at the end of the series. Goodbye and thanks for listening.